Good morning to each of you and blessings. Uh, it is good to be back. It's good to be hopefully over the hump and the illness and see each other's smiling faces. Be back to publicly gather and to worship. <clears throat> if you would, return with me now to the Old Testament book of Micah. And uh, Lord willing, we'll be looking at the beginning of chapter 6 today. And our study has progressed through the book and so that now we arrive at this third and final section. And if you'll recall, this book is written in legal language. The setting is basically that in, within the judicial system. Um, at the Reformation Bible study would call this a classic example of the prophetic covenant lawsuit. Um, we arrive today... Uh, at the text here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6. And if uh, I imagine that, that if John Grisham were reading this and writing a novel, he would entitle this The Indictment. And uh, that, that's what I've titled this. But uh, up to this point within the book, there's, there's been many warnings that have been given. There's been even been promises that have been handed out to, toward the nation of Judah uh, as if to, to be like a behavioral uh, motivation uh, as reminder for them to to know who they are, who their God is, and and where they're going, where He's leading them. <clears throat> now, assuredly, within this book, Micah has uh, spoken very bluntly to his people, to his neighbors, to his comrades, to his national leaders, to the whole populace at large. Uh, he's spoken very bluntly concerning their sin and. Um, now, in, in this final scene, though, there's something that changes. And here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 6, it's, a, it's as if that, that God the judge walks into the courtroom. And <clears throat> we're going to see here that, that Micah is almost serving double duty in these verses as not just God's district attorney, not just his representative, but almost as the bailiff, because he calls out and says that all present should arise. We see that in the last half of verse 1. And Judah's trial now begins with this. And it's not, it's not arbitration. It's not a private trial. But no, this is to be a public trial. Um, and it's so much so that Micah demands here that both the defense and the, the accused, both the defense and the prosecution, both of them are to present their case before the mountains, before the hills, before all of the earth, before all of creation. So it's a public trial. It's not a quiet, private discussion. Um, and and even, even as we think about the final chapters within the book of Job, with its very firm and strong, almost condemnatory language that, that God Himself is answering out of a whirlwind, but that's directed just towards one man. But this is now to an entire nation. No, this indictment here is to be before all the earth. And herein, the Lord God, the, the Almighty, the King of Israel, He is calling His people to give an account. And while He does so with absolute, with, with total, with complete authority, with, with firmness, He does it with love. And he does it as if through tears. Well, up to this point, Micah has been the front man. He's been the spokesman, the, the man out in front delivering God's message. But now, as, as the judge enters into the courtroom and he begins to even speak for himself, it's as if, it's as if Micah isn't even present here. Uh, the, this truth that's spoken to us is so poignant. It is so powerful. Yet, 
so simple and profound and that the words, they draw such a very individualized picture that not only the accused, but also the audience, and by, by removal, you and I as well, that, that we can only stand in rapt attention, in silence, listening to these words, because no man ever spake as this man spoke. Well, the reason that this judge can so directly address the ones that are before him is that he knows each one personally. He's a father to them. And even in his anger, he calls them my people. He's not denying them. He isn't disowning them. But rather, he's simply demanding that they be silent and they hear the truth. The fact that they are guilty sinners and that their charges against him They're completely unfounded. They're completely unfounded. Well, let's hear now Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. Because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel, He will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Well, as with the other sections, this final part begins with, with hear, with Shema, with listen up. And as, and we've, We've previously discussed this word before and some of the implications, some of the connotations, all all the different things that are associated with just this one simple word, with hear, with Shema. But but here's, here's another one. This is a gospel call to repentance. It's listen. It's pay attention. It's a command that is to be obeyed. Hear. Hear. And Judah, she may be justly indicted. She may be rightfully convicted. And she may even have the sentence of death over her. But there's still a way of escape. There is even still a door left open. Listen, this attorney calls. Hear, pay attention, the bailiff cries. Open your ears and hear the salvation of the Lord. Is what the court summons read. Well, here in verse 1, Micah, like, like John the Baptist, he prepares the way for the judge to enter the courtroom. No longer is he serving just as a prophet within the, within the ecclesial institution, the body of, 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 of God's people in worship, the church. No longer is he just a prophet there. No, now he, he's almost taken on the role of a law enforcement officer, like I said, similar to a bailiff. And, and he is now addressing um, or acting in the capacity within the governmental institution. And just kind of a side note, but this, this shows us, this teaches us that, that the law of God, it is applicable to every single institution of God. It applies to the family, it applies to the church, and it applies to the government. That's what got John thrown into prison, wasn't it? Because he dared to bring the law of God to bear upon the government. Just a side note there. But it is the duty of God's servants to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to all creation. So here it is then that Micah... He's calling on now the mountains and even the hills 
to be witnesses within this trial. It's a public proceeding. It's a matter of public record because this thing has not been done in a corner. No, it's been out in the open for everyone to see. Um, This call for witnesses, both here in verses 1 and 2, both creation itself and, and organized humanity, well, it's a reminder to us that, that our lives are not lived in seclusion. We live our lives before others. And as a general principle, men are called not to live in isolation, but rather in community. And as such, our faith and our unbelief, our actions... They're on full display for all to see. And as a result of this, and in consequence of the fall, not a single one of us can say, I'm naked and unashamed. No. Our lives are open, and we have shame. And and even in the case of those unsolved crimes, those mysteries within the criminal world, judicial realm, where men are still searching to solve the case. Even in those cases, we can be sure that your sin will find you out. Because one day, even the earth will cry out against us. Behold, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. Notice here, it's not Micah who's judging Judah. It's not the mountains and the hills that are condemning them. No, this is what the Lord is saying. Hear now what the Lord is saying. The Lord has a case against His people, against Israel. He will dispute. This is the indictment and the judgment of God Himself. Indictment. Case, controversy. The Lord has a case. The evidence has been collected, it's been presented, it's been received and reviewed by the judge, and a warrant has been issued. Law enforcement has served this warrant, and now Judah is on trial. Judah is on trial. But this isn't directed towards Assyria. You know, Sennacherib and and that 185,000, it's not directed towards them. It's not directed towards Babylon, who is to come and besiege Judah later. It's not a discussion against Babylon. No, three times in this passage, we are told that his indictment is against his people. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 5. My people. This section isn't directed towards the nations, although they are witnesses to this trial. This verbiage is directed towards God's own people, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah. And remember now that this was in the time in which God primarily addressed the world through the nation of Israel. And here he is taking his own nation to court. What a sorry sight that is. I mean, can you imagine how degrading, how humiliating that is? How humiliated Judah has to be. That that here are the very people of God. The nation to whom God personally led out of Egypt whom He gave them their law, whom He set up, whom He brought into Canaan, whom He established, His very people who who were declared to be instruments within His hands to go and to spread the news about how good and great and glorious their God was. They were supposed to spread His glory in the land and among the nations. And instead now, we have the land and the nations as present as witnesses for the prosecution against the very people of God. What a shame! You know though, this proves 
the justice of God. It proves it. He doesn't wink at his children's sin. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He doesn't give them a pass. No, he rather he calls them to account. For if you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate sons. You're not children. You're not sons. And this is a very, it's a critically important issue because, because if God did not call His own family to account, his, if He did not call Israel to account, then His justness could be called into question. Remember, this was in a time in which we are told that God overlooked, not, not ignored, not freely forgave, but he, but he overlooked the sins of the Gentiles. But guess what? We aren't in that time anymore. 2,700 years have passed since this message was delivered. And this message, it hasn't changed. Its demands haven't lessened. No, but now God commands that all men everywhere repent. So, in order for God's enemies to be without excuse... And in order to set up the historical stage for the entrance of the Savior of all men into history, into time, into space, God now addresses His people. God is indeed just. He is indeed righteous. And yet all men are without excuse, as Paul would tell us in the first part of Romans All men are without excuse. For if judgment begins with us first, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Does the Lord have an active prosecutorial case against you? As we flow into verses 3 through 5, God speaks. If this is a public trial and it's televised, the cameraman now, it, it pans. He, he, he moves his camera and, it, and, he, and he does so, so that Micah, the bailiff, the, the district attorney, he just fades into the background. And, and the audience is completely out of sight. The witnesses disappear. And we are left with just the judge in the frame. It's a close-up of the judge at the bench. And looking into his face, hearing his words, this indictment by the God of Israel here in these verses is so strong, it is so damning that, that you and I, even though we are removed by bloodline, We are removed by thousands of miles. We are removed by thousands of years. We still crumble under the weight of this guilt from the words of this judge. And we're going to look at that further in verses 6 through 8. But this is a very personal, a very intimate, and a very authoritative monologue by this judge. God is asking the questions. He now is the prosecuting attorney. And His words stop all mouths. None are able to contend with Him. The reality of His bigness and and man's impotence that causes everyone to cease and desist. You know, think about the questions that God poses to Job, beginning in chapter 38. It's a, one question after another for like three straight chapters. Pounds him. It's the same thing here. If you read this, these verses, if you consider the questions that God poses to Job... It, it's, it's like a, a sledgehammer pounding a stake into the ground, and you and I are the stake. We get pounded further and further and further. Who is this God? And who? what am I? 
Well, as we read these words, as we hear the voice of God in these verses, it's reading, though, that that God is speaking very forcefully, but as if through tears. There's no more now of Micah's sarcasm. There's no no more jokes, no more hyperbole here. It's... It's not even straight wrath, though, but even if there is some righteous indignation on the Lord's part as the judge, yet it is coupled with great, great sorrow as he addresses his disobedient children. It's as if we can hear Judah's question that that wasn't asked. It was a silent question. It was a silent argument that she posed against her God that says, is God fair? You know, it's not right that I'm in this situation. It's not fair. You know, people want to blame God. They want to to make Him the excuse and the reason for their plight, for their predicament, for their problems, for their trouble. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. And it's as if God replies to this, this silent argument, this, this excuse that Judah is making. It's as if He says, Judah, you, you want to know if I'm fair? You want to know if I'm just? What have I done to you? How exactly have I wearied you? Tell me. Do you honestly think that you, Judah, are just so righteous and that I am just so unjust. I tell you what, no. No, no, Judah, you, you answer me. You aren't in authority over me. No, I am God and you are in subjection to me. I answer to no man. I answer to no king. I answer to no country. No, Judah, you answer me. And the force of this imperative is so great that we can almost feel it right now. It's heavy. Who am I to question God? Have have I honestly said to Him, the woman you gave me, the serpent deceived me, You know, it was anyone and anything else's fault other than mine. I'm too big for this. I'm I'm too little for this. It's too hot. It's too cold. I'm too tired. I haven't had enough sleep. It's too dark in here. It's too bright. It's too cold. It's too hot. And on and on and on. I can't possibly be expected to obey under these circumstances. I can't possibly be expected to obey and to adhere to your restrictions that you have placed upon me. No, God, it's your fault. If you'd just left me in Egypt, everything would be fine. Well, it wouldn't exactly be fine, but at least I'd be like everybody else. Have I truly said these things? Yeah, I have. And you have too. You have too. And so the Lord continues His discourse here in 4 and 5, and He gives us a call to exercise and reorient our memory. He presents another witness. The witness of history. And why does He do this? What is history? History is the record, the accurate record, of what has previously occurred. And memory is what you and I perceive and recall as the record of what previously occurred. And it seems here that Judah was lying to herself. Or maybe she was forgetting. Maybe she was ignoring certain facts about herself, about her actions, about her situation, about her God, about His actions. And so the judge here, he calls for the videotape. And he asked that it be played. Okay, Judah, here is what happened. Let's have exhibit A. Let's push it in the player. And and I want you to to 
learn, I want you to see this and recognize that you need to face your true self. You need to see who you really are. Judah, you need to accurately and truthfully recall what you've done. Even prior to entering into Canaan, you need to remember what happened then. Judah, you need to remember my faithfulness. Despite your unfaithfulness. And by the way, everyone needs to see God's righteousness and Israel's sinfulness. So let's take this cassette. Let's take this disc. Let's, let's find the link and click on it so that you and I can, can see this retelling of events. And we're going to look up some passages here so we can, in our mind's eye, see what God is showing them. So turn with me now to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. We're going to begin in verse 4 and read through verse 13. Joshua 24, beginning in the latter portion of verse 4. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Then I brought you into the land of the Amorites who live beyond the Jordan, and they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land when I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and summoned Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. You crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and the Amorite, and the Perizzite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Thus I gave them into your hand. Then I sent the hornet before you, and it drove out the two kings of the Amorites from before you, but not by your sword or your bow." I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And our minds can, can see the scenes. We can see the scenes of them coming out of Egypt. We can see the plagues occurring. We can see the Egyptian army chasing after them with the wall of fire and the wall of cloud separating the two. And all of a sudden... Here they are, backed up against the Red Sea with no place to go. And what do we do? And Moses says, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. And here the sea walls part and they walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side. God holds the Egyptians back until they've crossed. And then, okay, now Egyptian go. And they're covered over and they're gone. We can see these scenes in our mind. We can see this with Balak and Balaam. Well, let's flip to side B and turn to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers 22, 1 through 5. <clears throat> they've crossed, they've, been, they've done the 40 years in the wilderness. And then it says in verse 1 of 22 of Numbers, Then the sons of Israel journeyed and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan opposite Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So Moab was in great fear because of the people, for they were numerous. And Moab was in dread of the sons of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this horde will lick up all that is around us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time. So he sent messengers to Balaam, 
the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land, and they are living opposite me. Well, let's pause the film for a second. So here they are on, on the, the eastern side of the Jordan River. Forty years have passed. They're getting ready to cross and enter into Canaan. And here is another enemy, Balak sees, and he is terrified. And so he is calling for an alliance. He is calling for help. And the following two chapters, the remainder of 22, chapter 23 and chapter 24, uh, and even additionally, in there's one verse in chapter 31 of Numbers that tell us a little bit more about what happened here. But they tell of how Balaam actually did desire to curse Israel for money. But God would not allow it. However, in order to still get paid, Balaam counseled subversion against Israel via food and sex. So let's press play again and look at Numbers 25, verses 1 through 9. So here they are waiting in the wilderness, waiting here. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to the Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel, while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked. Those who died by the plague were 24,000. What brazen sin here. And Judah is forced to see their true selves. They're forced to admit that they needed to be rescued, that they needed to be redeemed, that they needed leaders, they needed to be, to be protected from curses and from deceptions. And God met every one of their needs. Verse 4 in our text of Micah chapter 6, He brought them up. Verse 4, He ransomed them. Verse 4 again, He sent before them. Verse 5, He protected them. God met every one of their needs. When Israel thought about their exodus from Egypt, and when she thought about those wilderness wanderings, she would recall that in this period, she was unbelieving. She was fearful. She was full of complaints and excuses. And she had a heart that wanted to return to Egypt. When you or I, when we think about this land of Egypt, when we think about this house of slavery, house of servants, house of bondage, we ought to recognize that to be a slave, in Hebrew to be an ibed, by the way that's where we get the, the name Abednego, servant of Nego, Abdullah, servant of Allah, that's where that comes from, ibed, abed, or in the Greek, doulos, slave. And just as a quick aside, MacArthur had a really good sermon on this recently. But, but um, a slave is someone who is called to simply obey 
and to be in subjection to another. Well, in the, in the case of enslaved Israel, Israel under the bondage of Pharaoh in Egypt, in the case of those who are still held captive by Satan, whose eyes are blinded, listen, it is easier to just do what you are told than to think for yourself, than to rule your own mind. But guess what? We have been brought up out of this Egypt. We have been brought up out of this house. We have been given a new master, a new heart, a new mind. And if the Bible didn't say it, I'd be terrified to make this statement, but it says we have the mind of Christ. And we've said it here before that that we are to be thinking people. And and, in a recent, um, just one of those blanket subscription emails, Todd Friel with Wretched said this, he said, Christianity is a cognitive religion. And it is. We are to use our minds because God has not given us a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. No, but He has given us of power and of love and of a sound mind. But God is not just the God of the deists. No, He didn't deliver them and say, well, good luck, guys. No, He sent before them Leaders. He gave them leaders. He sent before. He planned. He reared. He prepared. Have you ever considered Amram and Jochebed? You ever thought about those? The Lord used their children to confront the most powerful ruler on the planet, to perform miraculous signs, to to lead an entire nation out from under another nation, to be spiritual leaders of this nation, all before a watching world. The Lord used Amram and Jochebed. And this is just a side point, but, but God often operates and is glorified in the use of regular people being faithful, just being faithful in their calling. Here were two slaves just doing their duty, yet fearing God. And the Lord used, He used used these two people to change the course of history. So don't ever think, don't ever think that God cannot or will not use you. He will not fail to use you in your apparent faithfulness or your little insignificant faithfulnesses to achieve great things for His kingdom. Don't ever lie to yourself and say that God can't use me because I am so small and so insignificant. We would not know these people's names had the Lord not revealed them to us. Well, God may have indeed brought them out of slavery, but He didn't remove their need for leadership. No, conversion doesn't make an adult out of a child. And regeneration doesn't mean that there's no longer room for for growth or for maturity or for development. And this is another one of those amazing statements. Did the Bible just say that? Yeah, it did. And it's, it's that, remember, that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew in wisdom? Jesus grew in favor with God? Yes. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that absolutely amazing? So the Lord here raised up three siblings to lead their brethren out from under a tyrant who regarded himself as a god. And I haven't heard this from anybody else, so feel free to correct me. Feel free to say, hey, you've lost your rocker here, but... The question at least did cross my mind here in thinking about Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Why did he mention those three? Why those three? Why their particular roles? Is, is there possibly a hint of the Trinity here? Moses as the law-giving father. Aaron as the high priestly son. Miriam as the, the prophesying spirit. I don't know. 
I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. But I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Regardless, though, the fact and the point of this passage is not an, an emphasis on, upon how righteous and how faithful these particular three people were, but rather these verses were given to, given to Judah to remind them of what God did. What God did. God was the only one who completely loved and cared for this rebellious, rebellious body. Moses, even in his anger, disobeyed God's direct command. Aaron was a coward and, and, and a liar who made this golden calf. Miriam was rebellious and, and was publicly chastised by God himself. So the point here is what God did. God was the only one who truly cared for this body of people. Think about Ezekiel when he talked about the baby lying there squirming in its own blood. And I said, behold, live. That's who this God is. Well, in addition to this security footage that showed to us the exodus from Egypt, the wilderness wanderings, and this confrontation here with Balak and Balaam, there's another film that's shown as evidence to help Judah's memory. And as we read here from the Numbers account, it's quite graphic. The reason, though, for this explicit nature of some of these accounts, some of this stuff, is to get across our calloused minds and our hearts our true state. The despicable nature of man and his sin. We've got to see it. Well, at this time of Balak and Balaam, Israel was, was willing, she was willing to ignore the commands of God. She was willing to set aside God's explicit commands. She knew the commands, yet she dis- decided and chose to ignore them and to disobey them. Why? She wanted to engage in sensuality. She wanted to engage in forbidden sexuality. And we read from some of those events in Numbers, but there's something else that we need to consider in regards to these two men, Balak and Balaam. Balak, as the leader of Moab, was afraid. The entire people of Moab were sore afraid. They were distressed. They were in dread. They saw this giant mass of people coming. They saw what God had already done to Egypt and to the other nations up to this point, And they were terrified. Balak knew that he didn't stand a chance. He didn't stand a chance against the confrontation against this Almighty God, this God of Israel. So he wanted to get some additional firepower. He needed some, some support. He needed some help. So what did he do? Well, any leader who is facing an impossible war odds does basically the same thing. He attempts to subcontract out his national defense. Hey, can you guys help me? I need, I need, anybody want to volunteer to come over here? Hey, I'll pay you. Come on over. Hey, let me call this nation beside me. Maybe they'll send some troops. Let me get some ammo. Can you support me? If you can't support me personally, can you support me monetarily? Well, that's what he does. But in this case, Balak's mercenaries are demonic. He's selling his soul to the devil here. That's what he's doing. And he knows just to whom to go to get this contract. Balaam. His reputations preceded him. You see, both these guys, Balak and Balaam, they serve the same God. Money. Money. Balak had the money, and Balaam wanted some of it. So, it was a natural deal. Um, Balaam had this reputation as a diviner, as he he who could speak to to spirits, who who could call upon curses and and otherworldly powers. And so, Balak wanted to hire him. Hey, I need some help. I need some help. So what were these guys doing? 
they were attempting to consult with and harness demonic powers in order to achieve their own ends. But something really interesting happened in this, didn't it? Every time Balaam opened his mouth to curse Israel, instead of cursing, there came a divine blessing. It wasn't, it wasn't that Balaam was, well, you know, I just uh, I decided to bless him. No, no. It, listen, folks, it doesn't matter if worldly, if underworld powers are leveled against you. If God's for you, who can be against you? Who? And this, this exact same message is told to us again and again and again in the Scriptures in different ways and different means. And, and, and yet still we are afraid. Still we're tempted. Still we are unbelieving and we choose to disregard and disobey the clear commands of God, of a holy God. Shame on us. Shame on us and shame on Israel. She chose to fall for the deceptive, seductive influence of her enemies. You know, those, those beautiful women, they really weren't their friends. No. This, the, the food that they were getting, it really wasn't a blessing to them. Those parties really all weren't what they were cracked up to be. No, they weren't honorable. And as a result, 24,000 died. Israel, she wasn't at risk from an outside threat. God prevented that. He wouldn't allow that. No. But Israel did bring a curse upon themselves because of their own lusts. Because of their own lusts. And we ought to take warning from that. Because James tells us that sin's always an inside job. But praise the Lord, sometimes the Lord prevents us from sinning even. Praise the Lord that He does that. And it was only, in this case, it was only the graceful wrath of God through Phineas and His righteous zeal that kept the judgment checked, that kept more judgment from coming upon Israel. And that's what God, the God of Judah, wanted Judah to remember when He brought up Balak and Balaam. He wanted them to remember that. And these things occurred now, like I said, in the 40th year of their exodus out of Egypt. Here we are. It's, the, it's almost the last thing that occurs before they enter into Canaan. Canaan. And uh, so when the text says there at the last half of verse 5, from Shittim to Gilgal, it's referencing all that occurred from the time in which in which. Israel came, uh, excuse me, had encamped by the Jordan in the plains of Moab, here facing Balak and Balaam. So it's, it's everything that, that transpires from the time they camp here in the plains of Moab to when they come up from the Jordan <clears throat> on the western side of the river and, and camp at Gilgal on the eastern side of Jericho. And until they observed the Passover and ate some of the produce of the land. So from this, this short period of time here, when they camp at Shittim, cross the Jordan, camp at Gilgal, and partake of the Passover prior to, to fighting Jericho. This is what it's talking about. From Shittim to Gilgal. I want you to remember this. It's the last place outside Canaan and the first place inside. And I think it's important for us just to remember, just to take a moment to consider these two places and why it is that God has specifically mentioned them. So Shittim, it's also called Abel Shittim, which means meadow of the Acacias. And only five times of the 32 times that it's used in the King James does it refer to a location. Other times it's simply in regards to the, the wood or the, the tree, Acacia. And we've talked about that in Exodus with the, the furniture within the tabernacle. We talked about that a lot on Wednesday nights. But only five times is it used <clears throat> as a, in regards to a location. And it's, again, it's the, it's the location, it's the region in which these events with Balak and Balaam transpired. Uh, it's the place where Joshua was commissioned after Moses dies. It's the place from which Moses, uh, uh, Joshua sends out those spies into Jericho. That happened here at Shittim. What about Gilgal? Gilgal is used 41 times. 
in the King James. And, in, and again, it's opposite uh, the Jordan, opposite of, of, uh, of, of Shittim. And it's where Israel camped after she crossed the Jordan. You know, and after she crossed, we talked about how the, how the men would carry up the stones from, from the river and they set up the, the, the memorial. That's where they set them up at, at Gilgal. Um, this was where Judah was recircumcised because that didn't happen when they were in the wilderness. So they were circumcised here. They, they partook of the, the Passover here. Uh, in the period of the judges, it was very an idolatrous place. Many idols and engraved images were set up at Gilgal. Uh, and later on, it was a very, very important place in the life of Samuel because this was, this was on his circuit that he would go through the nation. He would stop at Gilgal there and, and, and judge the people. It was where Samuel anointed Saul. It was where Saul illegally sacrificed and, and did not complete the commands in slaughtering the Amalekites. And it's where Samuel then came and killed Agag at Gilgal. So both of these places here were highly significant in the life of the nation of Israel. Well, why is this important? Why does he mention this? Why is this important? Well, the mention of certain geographical places, it usually causes men to remember their past, and in this case, their nation's identity. And let's do a little test here. If I just mention three places, immediately your mind is going to start thinking about it. Consider Valley Forge. Consider Independence Hall. Consider Plymouth Rock. What are you doing? You're thinking about what's happened at those places. What was significant about our nation's founding when I mentioned those locations? Do you see how geography connects to history? Place connects to time? That's what God is doing here. So, so not only is, is God using place, but he's, he's connecting that with time. He's using both history and location, both time and space, to show His people who they are and who He is. To show them where they have come from and to where they are going. You know, this Bible as a whole is, is talking about how and when and the, the time that it takes to get from the dust from east of Eden all the way to the golden streets of the New Jerusalem. You see, it's place, it's time. Why is this important? Well, at this moment in history, in which Micah is delivering this prophecy, the nation of Judah is under the judgment of God. She is under the judgment of God, and she's very anxious. She's very fearful. What's going to happen? Israel's just been led away into captivity. What's up for us? The Assyrians are attacking. She's scared and she's seeking for political solutions to a moral problem. So it is that God's Word and God's man tells the nation to consider their past. Who have they been from day one? They've been idolatrous, they've been rebellious, and they've been lustful. And consider how God has been patient with them how His Word has not failed, despite their failures at every single turn. Why is this important? Well, God tells us why. He Himself tells us why this is important to remember what happened from Shittim to Gilgal. So that you may know. So that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And when you and I honestly look at our past, when we stop making excuses and we recognize our own sinfulness and God's righteousness, that's what we're going to see. When we honestly stop and look at it and hear the words, we see the video playing, and we take the time and effort to see and to remember we see just what God has done for us. And when we do that, we are going to grapple with the questions that's presented in verses 6 through 8. Well, what's being presented here is what the gospel seeks to impress upon men. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. 
what's being presented here is repentance toward God and faith towards Christ. The gospel calls men and women to confession and to worship. That's what it calls for. And Israel had every right in the world, every reason in the world to believe and to trust God. And the judge here just simply brings up a few historical examples in order to press that home to them. Yet there are hundreds. There's hundreds of reasons to believe God. And here we are now with 2,700 more years of history. 2,700 more years of God working within history, orchestrating events, creating places, putting people in those places, in those times. How many more righteous acts does God need, has He performed in that period? Countless. Countless. And how many times has God's, have people rejected God as their king? How many times? Time and time again, how many more reasons does he need to give? None. Absolutely none. And yet, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Listen, He only needed to send Christ in order to be in compliance with His own integrity. And only to be in compliance with His own word. That's the only reason He needed to send Christ. The only obligation God has is to Himself. And yet, He is merciful. He is patient. He ransoms and He delivers people who are in slavery. And He blesses those who are under curse. He promises that all things work together for the sake of the called. All things. Listen, the entire work of salvation is an act of God. He may and He does use individuals and means and places within that process, within that moment. But your deliverance, your redemption, your protection, your provision is all accomplished by Him. And though Satan is standing and he is firing his arrows at you, even though you stand maybe right at the door as you stand right at the tip of the Jordan, if, if you are His child, if you will but put your faith and trust in Him, then you will come through the Jordan. You will pass through that door and those arrows now will strike the door and leave you unharmed. Those deadly shafts, those poison tips will sink full force into He who became a curse for us. So may we humbly repent. May we repent and receive the indictment from the Spirit of God so that Christ may receive those lethal arrows. For though He does presently stand as this door, He will come as a judge. Let's pray. Holy Lord, we are left on our knees by this passage. We are left in recognition, Lord, that we are indeed sinners. That we have been unfaithful to You. And that You have been utterly and completely faithful to us. We are in just just need of a curse. We justly deserve death. And yet You're merciful. You are forgiving. And You have sent a ransom for our souls. 
Lord, thank you for being that door. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us up out of Egypt, for delivering us from the house of slavery, for sending us leaders, for sending us the leader, the teacher, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to believe and to walk in faith before Him. Lord, help us to trust. Help us to repent, Lord, and help us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Send Him now and restore our hearts before You, Lord, we ask. In the blessed name of Jesus, amen.